All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. This episode is a recording from our college worship gathering. If you are a college student in Waco, we'd love to have you join us any Sunday at 2 p.m. in the Sanctuary of First Baptist Church, Waco, where we learn about the way of Jesus together and discern what it looks like to live it out as a community. Well, the last three weeks, we've been doing a series together called The Politics of Jesus. And through this series, what we've been working on together is forming a political thought theology. We've talked about several different things the last few weeks. We've talked about, first of all, the idea of becoming political misfits. We talked about working for justice in the world. We talked last week about seeking the welfare of the city. And then today we're going to talk about this idea of resisting the empire. And so in this series, what we have been doing is asking the question, what does Jesus have to do with politics? And the answer that we've landed on is a lot. Actually, he has in some ways everything to do with politics. We've we've talked uh, about this quote a couple of times in this series from Eugene Peterson, and it's that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one expects. And so each week we've been looking at this, uh, this chart together. We've been talking about the four ways that Christians think about politics. And we've talked about how most Uh, either want to link up with the left or the right, either the Democrat or the Republican Party is the way Christians ought to think and to vote. We said the problem with this is that this requires compromise. Sometimes, somewhere, it will. Uh, We talked about how sometimes we want to do this up option instead. We want to say, well, let's just stick to the spiritual and let's not care about anything political instead. But God cares about this world and he wants it to be a better place and we should too. And so we can't just stick to the spiritual. Um, and so what we have been talking about in this series is how to pursue this down option about how to, uh, as the church, we can be an alternative political option that cares about the needs of the world and doesn't have to elect someone to fix them. That as a community, we can seek the welfare of the place that we live. And when we do so, then we are being political. And so last week we watched a video from the Bible project called The Way of the Exile. And uh, we talked about how the, the church today is in the beginning stages of exile. And no, we haven't been uh, abducted by a, f- a foreign people or anything like that. Although we did kind of entertain the, the imagination of what if the Oklahoma Sooners came down to Waco and took us into captivity in Norman. That would be the equivalent of what happened in, in, uh, in exile to the Israelites. But we haven't been uh, abducted today. Instead, when we say that the church is in exile, what we mean is that while we used to have power and influence and, and respect in our culture, that today uh, the church is no longer at the center of society, but we're on the periphery, we're on the margins, that no one cares what we think anymore, no one is asking us to lead anymore, and this is what it means to be in exile. And so what does the church do in exile? And so this, this video introduced two ideas, uh, they're a paradox, that, that we're to live in the tension between loyalty and subversion. So last week we talked about loyalty, and we read uh, Jeremiah 20, 29, that we are to seek the shalom, to seek the welfare, seek the flourishing of the places that, where we live. And we looked at this chart together, and we talked about how seeking the shalom of our city is going to mean caring about education and caring about the environment, about civic concerns, and about the economic layers of our world. Well, today we're going to watch that same video again, uh, but instead we're going to talk about the other side. We're going to talk about the subversion layer. So as you watch this video, uh, pay attention to the way that it talks about Babylon as a symbol. 
At this point, we watched a video from the Bible Project called The Way of the Exile. I would encourage you to pause the podcast right now and go find that video on YouTube so you can better track along with this discussion. So on April 24th, 2013, there was a factory in Bangladesh in the Dhaka region. And it was eight stories tall. And on a particular morning, uh, there were 3,639 workers that were supposed to go into this factory and, and work. And yet they protested to, to go into the factory because as they looked at it from the outside, there were large and dangerous cracks in the factory walls. Now, the owner of this building, he, uh, he paid some gang members to, to, to beat the men and women who were supposed to go in and work and told them that unless they went inside, uh, that there would be no, no money coming their way during that month. And th- therefore, they would not be able to feed their, uh, themselves and their children. And so that morning, against their will, the workers were forced inside to this factory and they began to work. 45 minutes later, the electricity went out, the generators kicked on. All of a sudden, they felt the building begin to move. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion and the building collapsed. And that day, um, 1,137 of those workers died. Now, 80% of them were young women, 18, 19, 20 years of age. Uh, Their standard shift was 13 to 14 and a half hours long from 8 a.m. to 9 or as long as 10.30 p.m. Worked 90 to 100 hours a week, just two days off a month. And the the wages they were paid are anywhere from between 12 to 24 cents an hour, depending on the job that they worked, which meant that the richest among them made $12.48 a week. Now, this is... A tragic story, yes, but the worst part of this story is that what these workers were doing in this factory is they were making clothes for Americans. The very clothing that ends up in our stores and in our closets comes from places like this. And this introduces a bit of a scary idea for us is that when, when you and I uh, do something as, as simple as shop for clothes, then we are perpetuating a system that can oppress real people and real factories like this one in Bangladesh. That in, in some sense that we are contributing to this reality just by purchasing a pair of jeans. And it's not just clothing, although that, that is a big one. It's, it's many aspects of our life. It's your smartphone. It's your t-shirt. It's your computer. It's your cup of coffee. coffee. That all of this today requires modern slavery for the industry to exist. Now, a lot of us may think that slavery is a thing of the past, and it may look different today than it did in previous eras, but it is alive and well. In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than than ever before. In 2018, the, the Global Slavery Index estimated that there were 40 million slaves in the world today. That is one in every 200 people in the world today enslaved. Um, a website that I would encourage you to, to check out is this. It's slaveryfootprint.org. It allows you to see your slavery footprint. Uh, I found that about most Americans today have about 80 slaves or so working for them on average without their awareness. And you may think, what? How, how is this possible? How? how? You know, I, I buy stuff from reputable brands and markets. How could this sort of thing happen? Well, the, the website gives an explanation. It says, the fact of the matter is these reputable brands that we know and love, they just don't know where all the materials come from. What about the cotton in that shirt, the tantalum in that smartphone, the beans in that cup of joe? 
That's where you find the slaves, in the fields, in the mines, in the raw materials processing. It's the supply chain, and it enslaves more people than at any time in human history. They are working for you. And this is terrifying because it means that as we go about our everyday lives, just, just eating, drinking, shopping, communicating, that we're contributing to egregious evils. That on the one hand, it's the oppression of the poor, and then on the other hand, it's the tarnishing of the earth. Every item that comes through your hands has a, a past and a future. Its, its past is often linked to labor, and its future is often linked to a landfill, sometimes after just one use. And of course, we're not doing any of this intentionally. We're good people just trying to live our lives. But even when we mean no harm, people are harmed. And that's a scary reality, that we've become cogs in the machine, perpetuating its existence. And it seems like there can be no way to make this machine stop. So what do we do about this? How do we, how do we think about this theologically? Well, the video today introduced the idea of empire. Okay, The idea that in the Bible, Babylon is more than just a place or a people that have been lost to history, that Babylon is an ongoing reality. So here was the quote from the video. It says, in the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. And so, yes, the, the original empire of Babylon fell a long time ago. But in the mind of the Bible, Babylon lives on, lived on through various empires, like Persia, Greece, onto Rome, and it lives on today as well. Uh, I find that Shane Claiborne is, is helpful in, in under, helping us understand this. He says, when it comes to empire, uh, we are not just talking about the violent militarism of Rome or the United States or Iran or North Korea, that we are also talking about a much more prevalent, subtle, and powerful empire that seeps into every home. And it's our daily global lifestyle. And so he says, in the last few hundred years, the average person's life has become dizzyingly complicated. Even the seemingly simple act of drinking a cup of coffee involves an intricate international system of bean pickers, international shipping fueled by oil from who knows where, packaging and what, roasting by energy from who knows where, domestic shipping, driving to get it, usually using car parts and gas from around the world, and so on. It's like the cup of coffee has been dragged halfway across the earth, leaving trench-like trail marks along the way. So this is why it can be said that we still live in Babylon today, is that in the Bible, Babylon is the symbol for empire. And the biggest empire, as Claiborne says, is our daily global lifestyle. So like it or not, we, we belong to this global empire, the system, the machine that sweeps us off of our feet and it carries us along its current, whether we like it or not, just by living a normal life. So I want to show you a great example of how the Bible talks about Babylon in this way. And we're going to read a text from Revelation chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. We'll put it on the screen as well. Revelation 17 uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, you know probably that, that Revelation uh, can be a strange and confusing book. There's lots of symbols and things that are hard to understand. Uh, so hang with me here as we read these verses, and I'll help us walk through them and see the things that we need to see. So uh, Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. It says, uh, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute 
who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. It says, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Okay, so this is a strange passage, right? Uh, But a very important one. So what's happening here is that John, the author, sees a woman who he learns is a prostitute. And the woman's name we we saw in verse 5 is Babylon. Okay, so this is clearly a symbol. Uh, So this woman, the prostitute, has committed adultery, we're told, with all the kings of the earth. Now, remember that John writes this uh, during the time of the the Roman Empire. And that's interesting because Babylon has fallen a long time ago. He doesn't live in the age of Babylon. And so John here is using uh, Babylon not to talk about the actual nation, but to talk about a symbol of empire. And he has two goals in mind in doing this. The first one is to expose Rome, which was the empire of his day, as just the newest version of Babylon. But then secondly, uh, he's suggesting, as we've been saying, that these empires will keep popping up and up again in every era and they will live on together. So we're going to read a little more of this text. We're going to move to chapter 18. But, but keep th- this, uh, in mind this image of Babylon as described as a prostitute who's accused of committing adultery with all the kingdoms of the world. Got that? Okay. Because when we get to chapter 18, now it starts to get interesting. So in verse 4 of chapter 18, we read this. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, and so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So let's dig into this here. If you thought the Bible was kid-friendly, this this passage is going to to prove you wrong, right? So in verse 4, the voice from heaven says, Come out of her. My people, again, keep in mind that, that Babylon has been described as a prostitute, and then the people are told that they should come out of her. And so, yes, this is what you think it is here. The Bible, your Bible here, is making a sexual metaphor, okay? And the image is, is vivid. It's designed to be one that you're not going to soon forget. The purpose of this sexual metaphor is come out of her, is used to describe how the people of God should relate to the empire of their day. And the message could not be more clear. It's, it's stop committing adultery with the empire. Stop getting swept away in its current. Come out of her. Pull out. Stop being complicit. Look, so this is what the jarring message we hear from Revelation 18 is, is that if you and I live in Babylon here today, and if that means that, that we're connected to this global web, that not only oppresses the poor, as in Bangladesh, but also harms God's earth and well, that the message that we are told living in Babylon is, is come out. Come out. 
And so what do we do about it? How does the church come out? How do we resist the empire of our day? Well, as we've said, this is, this is really hard because these items are so interwoven into our lives uh, that most likely all of us right now are wearing products of, of slavery. It might be our clothes. It might be the phone in our pocket. And so what would it look like for us to, to come out? Are we just supposed to like live in the jungle without a phone, you know, and just eat straight off the tree? Like, how would we even do that? And, and personally, I don't think God's expecting that from us. The world is a, is a fallen place. And so on some level, we have to accept the inevitability of these systems, that full purity is just not going to be possible until Jesus returns. But we, we can live in the world today and still make progress. And so, in fact, I believe that's what God wants us to do. So what would it look like for us to be faithful living in the midst of empire today? Well, let's turn to, to Claiborne um, again. Claiborne says, coming out, and he's referring to this passage here in Revelation 18, coming out for the early Christians meant sharing all things in common, selling possessions, and, not, and giving to anyone in need, Acts 2 and 4. Just as ancient Israel was an alternative to the exploitive ec economies in Egypt and Canaan, so too these early Christians understood themselves as set apart in all areas of their lives, including economic. They practiced radical economic sharing, so much that it could be even be said that they ended poverty in the small pockets they lived in. One of the results of the birth of the church at Pentecost was that the church ended poverty and there was no needy persons among them. That's a quote from Acts 4. The community itself became good news to the poor. They lived near one another, sharing a common rule of life, daily sharing worship and friendship. And so this gets at the idea that we've been talking about all series, that the church is called to be an alternative political option and upside down people who live out an alternative reality in the midst of the world as a visible embodied alternative to the mainstream of the world. And it's not just morally that we do this, but economically as well. And so living in the West, by, by default, we kind of have an individual mindset of how can I fix this? What can I do about this? What can I do differently? But the first thing you can do is actually to belong to a community that's working to, to fix this together. And that's why I'm personally drawn to communities like the one Claiborne described here that, that focus on living near one another and, and sharing their possessions. That we have 10 families, we don't need all 10 of them to buy a shovel. Let's, let's share what we, what we have. Let's come out of the empire. And so the church, as an alternative political option, suggests that our task is to be, begin by creating little pockets of space where the kingdom comes alive where there is no need among us, and then working hard so that these pockets can spread and they can spread like a mustard seed until hopefully the whole world is wrapped up in shalom. So that's the communal level, but there's an individual layer here too. What does uh, resisting the empire look like as an individual in your life tomorrow, the next day, this year, in a world marked by a global economy? Well, there's, a, there's a million things that we could focus on, but I want to start by just encouraging you to, to think really carefully about your purchases. I want to uh, challenge you to, to start thinking about every purchase that you make. Every time you pull out your credit card, what, is, what am I doing with this money? And there's a couple of questions that you can start asking yourself um, every time, and it's this. First of all, uh, is, does this harm the earth, God's earth, uh, and does this oppress the poor? Now, pause for a minute. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus? everything, right? Because God is making all things new, all right? So now when you, when you ask these two questions, especially at first, your answer most of the time will probably be, I have no idea. I don't know. And, that, and that's okay. 
But over time, you can work towards being more educated about learning more of these things. And, and over time, you'll find little ways to, um, to answer these questions. Um, so a few sort of uh, principles to kind of live by. If, if what you're going to buy is going to end up in a landfill with little usage, maybe a one-time use, very little use at all, train yourself to start saying no. If you have an opportunity to buy something fair trade, which is sort of a verified way of saying no slaves, then try to do so, even if it's going to cost you a little bit more. Uh, you see, our lives are made up of a million tiny decisions. And if you think about the massive change that has to happen in the world, you'll get overwhelmed really quickly. But if you can make little small changes that grow over time, then we can take care of God's earth and we can take care of God's people. So a few practical examples for you. Let's first of all, think about your phone in your pocket. Now you pretty much need a phone to get by. Uh, you know, you can't really just get rid of it and move out to the jungle, right? Uh, and yet owning a, owning a phone harms the earth and yes, it oppresses the poor as well. So what do you, what do you do about this? Well, instead of saying, well, you know, head of the jungle, send me a, a, you know, a pigeon carrier if you need to get a hold of me. Uh, maybe it just means that you, uh, that you don't update your phone immediately just because you can't. Maybe it means that you hold on to it for another year. It's a small change, but over time it adds up. Now let's think about the clothing industry, the garment industry. Super bad about oppressing the poor and harming the earth, piling up landfills. Does this mean that you never go shopping again? Well, no, of course not. But, but it might mean that you think really closely about the amount of clothes that you own. You may give away what you don't use or need. You might think twice before you buy. Uh, if you really actually need more or if shopping is just sort of some coping mechanism for you, uh, you may consider buying used at a, at a thrift store. You may consider buying quality so that it won't fall apart so quickly. And my hope for you in these examples is that you'll start thinking about the daily purchases that you make in your life. And yet in all of this, it gets, it gets really easy to, to get super uptight and to never have any fun. And I don't, I don't think that's what God wants for us either, that we still have to live life. God wants us to enjoy creation, not ceaselessly criticize ourselves for our purchases. And so from time to time, we do need to create space to celebrate, and we don't have to be always legalistic. So in a few minutes, we're about to celebrate uh, New Year's, right? And uh, happy, happy new break. And uh, in a few minutes, we're going we're to pass out to you some confetti poppers. Now that creates waste for a one-time use. Is that hypocritical? Yeah, kind of, you know. But, but hey, we, we have to have space in our life occasionally for, for celebration. And we don't do this every week, all right? We want to celebrate the end of the semester with you, a really hard semester. Now, did I also think about buying New Year's hats to pass out to each one of you as well? Yes, I did. But that's where I decided to, to draw the line, all right? You know, uh, that's just more instant waste. And so we all have to draw the line in, in different places. There's no perfect way to do this um, at all. So some of us are going to be more radical than others. We'll all draw the lines in different places. Uh, we've got to learn to give grace to ourselves and to others who draw the lines differently than we do, uh, not to shame them into our lines. Uh, but at the same time, we ought to encourage one another all the time to become a better steward of, of God's creation for his glory and for the well-being of our brothers and sisters across the globe. Here's a, one more quote to, to close with from Claiborne. And this is, I think, a really good way to wrap up our series um, as a whole. He says, the distinctively kingdom question is not about how we should vote in an election, but how we should live. There's a great summary for the whole series. The decision we make in each future election is 
no more important than how we vote every day. See, every day we vote for companies, for people, and we put money towards campaigns. We need to think of the faces behind the scenes. Who are the masters and Caesars that we pledge allegiance to by the way we live and through the things we put our trust in? We vote every day with our feet, our hands, our lips, and our wallets. And in our daily voting, we are to vote for the poor. We are to vote for the peacemakers. We are to vote for the marginalized, the oppressed, the most vulnerable of our society. These are the ones Jesus voted for. So today we live in Babylon, but there is good news that God has love for all of his people. And we get to show that too by coming out, by taking care of those around us. So loyalty and subversion are the words we've been talking about the last two weeks. Loyalty looks like seeking the welfare of the city. And subversion looks like resisting the empire. This is the tension that the church is called to live in. And this is the opportunity we have to be faithful to the way of Jesus.